Today is opening day for Major League Baseball. First three games of the season are going to be played this afternoon. Tomorrow is the official opening day, but baseball is off and running. The season will conclude October the 2nd, and that's when the playoffs will begin. Whenever you think about baseball, you can't help but think about the storied tradition of the, Chicago, of the Cincinnati Reds. I cheered for Cincinnati as a kid growing up. I cheered for the Astros. I grew in, up in Houston, but there were so many great players in Cincinnati. And, of course, here in Oklahoma, we feel like we have a real connection with the Cincinnati Reds because of our own Johnny Bench. Being born here in Oklahoma City, growing up in Billings, you go down to our ballpark, there's a picture or a statue of Johnny right out front. And, of course, they have a statue of Johnny up in Cincinnati. No, it's an amazing franchise. And back in 2003, they built the new stadium, the Great American Ballpark, they call it. The address is 100 Joe Nuxall Way. It was Joe Nuxall who was a sportscaster for them uh, for 37 years. And in the end, it was Joe who was always saying, this is the old left-hander rounding third and heading for home. That word, rounding third and heading for home, are written in big letters on the stadium on the north side. It all goes back to 1944. You remember we were at war. About three-fourths of all the Major League Baseball players had actually enlisted. They went off to go fight the war. It was President Roosevelt who had gone to the commissioner of Major League Baseball and said, please keep the schedule. Please keep playing baseball. We're going to need to keep the morale up in our country. It's going to be a hard time. Please somehow keep playing. So Major League Baseball went to a bunch of the old retired guys to bring them back. And then they went to people who were too young to be drafted to bring them up. One of those in 1944 was Joe Nuxall. He was living there in Hamilton, Ohio. He was 15 years old. But at 15 years old, Joe already stood 6'2", 195 pounds, and he threw an 85-mile-an-hour fastball. That's while he was in junior high. He had already thrown 10 no-hitters. And so the Cincinnati Reds came to him, and they signed him to a contract to a professional baseball contract to come into play in the major leagues. Now, for opening day of that season, Joe had to go to the principal and ask him if he could have a day off from school. The principal granted it, and he was there in uniform in the dugout on opening day, though he didn't get to play. He would make certain road trips with the team, still not really playing, though, not until June of that year. In June of that year, they were in St. Louis. They were losing 13 to nothing. It was in the eighth inning when the manager said to Joe, go down to the bullpen and warm up. And he did. And when the ninth inning started, he handed him the ball, and Joe went out to the mound, 15 years old. He'd been throwing against kids who were 13, 14, 15 years old. And now as he warmed up, he looked over on deck, and there was Stan Musial. Now, that, that's quite a change to be throwing to 15-year-olds, and now you're looking at Stan Musial. He actually did pretty amazing. He got the first person to ground out, walked the next one, got the third one out. 
but then he kind of started getting a little wild and a few more walks and Stan Musial came up, drilled one into the outfield for a hit. Before it was all said and done, there were five runs scored, still only two outs. It was now 18 to nothing when they pulled him out of the game and brought in someone else to get the last out. After that game, Joe Nuxall was sent down to the minor leagues. Actually, he was sent back to school. But he did play in the Cincinnati Reds minor league team for the next several years, except his senior year, he was actually given an official year of retirement so that he could finish school. And when he finished school, then retirement was over, and he went back to the Reds farm team. And when he was 23, eight years after he first pitched, he was signed to a major league contract again. Now he would play 16 years in the big leagues. He would go on to be one of the top pitchers for Cincinnati in their history. An amazing pitcher. A wonderful career. But though, when he was about 39 years old, it was 1967, they had spring training. And when you're that old, that's old in baseball. And the manager came to him, and Joe knew that he had made the team for another year. I mean, he could see how good he was pitching. But the manager said, we're not going to have a spot on the roster for you this year. In a moment, that dream of playing in the major leagues was over. It had been 16 incredible years. But the manager said, we'd like to give you an opportunity to go into the broadcasting booth to broadcast our radio show. He'd never done that before. He'd never even thought about it before. But it was time to re-envision life. He said he would try. He got hooked up with Marty Brenneman, and the two of them started doing the games. And it turned out that Joe loved it. He found a new passion for being able to, to, to call the games. He was still involved with the Reds, still involved in baseball. He loved the team. He would have been a left-handed pitcher. They still needed someone to throw batting practice. He was always down there trying to help the young guys coming along, just like Ron Oster. Ron had come along one year. He was the leading RBI hitter. The next year, he went into a slump, and he started swinging less and less, becoming so selective in his pitches. His production fell. One day, Joe was out there throwing batting practice when he got him off to the side and said, Ron, you're too selective with your pitches. No contact. No chance. And Ron got out and started swinging. And when he started swinging, he started hitting, and he came on back. Joe loved being there to help the players. He loved being there to sign autographs for the kids, sign autographs for the adults, be involved in charitable events in the community. He loved what he was doing. And he did it all the way until 2004. He first pitched for him in 1944. Sixty years later, in 2004, he had to retire. He had been fighting a battle with cancer. He now was 75. He'd make it another three years to 2007. But whenever he had been broadcasting for all those years, the one thing he'd always say when he came to the end of the game was, this is the old left-hander, rounding third, heading for home. He didn't mean he's coming to the end. Now, what he meant by that was 
I'm still in the game. To be heading for home, that's the goal. To score. To be in the game. To give your best, to be running hard, rounding third. It really was all about saying, I look at my life. You can be junior high, and then you're playing in the big leagues. But you've got to redefine your life when you go back to high school. And then you redefine who you are when you go back to the big leagues. And then that dream ends, and you go into broadcasting. Life is a series of having to redefine who you are. And you have those difficult times and the good times, the successes and the failures. Somehow that note touched people's hearts over all those years. And that's why they put it up on the stadium. Because it just kind of spoke to people. Rounding third, heading for home. I'm still in the game. This morning, I want to begin a new sermon series. Rounding third and heading for home. And what I want to do is to think about how Easter is not just a moment, a day last week. Easter is an experience. An experience that goes on day after day. You and I live in the Easter experience. And it's because we live Easter that we're still in the game, rounding third and heading for home. You know, we said that we've just come through Lent. And Lent, we say, is the 40 days preceding Easter, not including Sundays. You remember, that's why there's Mardi Gras. You have a big day of partying because Lent, you're not supposed to be partying. Lent is a time of self-reflection, introspection. It's a time we get honest about our lives. You and I talked about our fears and running in the wrong direction. No, it's a more somber time, a time when you repent, go a different direction. But the reason that Sundays are not a part of Lent is because every Sunday is supposed to be a small Easter. Every Sunday, you're supposed to celebrate the resurrection. Every Sunday, you celebrate the power that calls you forward into life so that you stay in the game, rounding third. Still heading for home. For these next six weeks, we're going to look at what does this mean? How do you and I stay in the game, living life because we live Easter? In our scripture lesson this morning, we were looking at Peter. And we're going to look at Peter week after week to see how Easter leads him into a different life. And what we see Peter today is at that difficult moment. You know, he had been a fisherman. And then Jesus came along and gave him a whole new vision. I'll let you be a fisher of men. And Peter left his nets and now he dreamed of changing the world, being at Jesus' right hand when he established the kingdom of Israel. I mean, how exciting is that? And then in Jesus' most difficult moment, Peter denies knowing him. Jesus is crucified. It has been said he's been raised from the dead, but it will never be the same the way Peter expected it to be. After failure, after disappointment, Peter faces that moment. What do you do? 
And he says, I'm going fishing. Why did he say I'm going fishing? Well, when you go fishing, it's kind of going back to the way things were. He's doing what he knows, what he's comfortable doing. It's basically Peter saying, I had hoped I was going to help change the world. But that didn't work out. I'm going to settle for less. My life is going to be less. I'm going back fishing. I believe we all face those moments, whether we are young, young and feeling overwhelmed with all kinds of responsibilities, financial debt, struggling with kids, or whether we've grown older, we've grown tired, disillusioned, comfortable. We all face those questions. Do I still dream? Do I still let God lead me into the future? Do I still have passion about life? Am I still in the game? Rounding third, heading for home. That's what you and I are going to look at for these next six weeks. But what I want to do today is I want to kind of give us a foundation from which to begin. And there's really just two things that I want to say. First of all, if you want to be safe, go sit on a fence. Life is about taking risk. Last year, we looked at the sermon series, um, Inventing the Future. And we looked at Orville and Wilbur Wright and one of the most significant inventions in history, which was the airplane. When Orville and Wilbur invented the airplane, people were just so excited, blown away. I mean, people wanted to fly, but they were afraid to fly. They wanted to get on an airplane. They were afraid to get on an airplane. And so it was, people were always saying to Wilbur, what do I need to do to be able to fly? How do I learn to fly? And I want to read you what Wilbur had to say about that. Because he explained that learning to fly is kind of like learning to ride a horse. He said, you can learn to ride a horse in two ways. One is to get on him and learn by actual practice how each motion and trick may be best met. The other is to sit on a fence and watch the beast a while and then retire to the house at leisure, looking out, looking for the best way of overcoming his jumps and kicks. The latter system is the safest, but the former, on the whole, turns out the larger proportion of good riders. If one were looking for perfect safety in flying, one would do well to sit on the fence and watch the birds. But if you really wish to learn to fly, you must get on a plane and try. To get on a plane and risk. To embrace life. It's the only way you live if you risk emotionally, physically, The way you and I find the courage to risk again after failure or disappointment is by knowing the risen presence of Christ. This past summer, Marsh and I had a great time going to England to follow in the footsteps of John Wesley, the founder of our Methodist church, going with a group of other pastors and and to follow his life chronologically. We, We started in Epworth, 
came to London, went to Bristol, back to London. And I came to appreciate John Wesley in a, in a whole different way when I looked at his life in totality. A young man has his dreams, goes to Oxford, gets out to be a preacher, and has a call to be a missionary. You know where he goes? Georgia. Comes to the United States, goes to Georgia as a missionary. And things do not go well. He does not get along with his congregation. But he does fall in love with a lady named Sophie Hopkins. And Sophie Hopkins is a, a young lady he is crazy about, but he's just so afraid of getting married. Every night he goes and he opens his Bible and puts his finger down. And then he will do it and look for another scripture and put it down. He kept waiting for a scripture to say, go marry Sophie. <laughs> Never got it. So he didn't ask the question. And Sophie wanted a husband. And so she was out dating someone secretly. And after dating secretly, he asked her to marry him. She said yes, and they announced they were married. John was so crushed. Then he got angry at them refused to serve them communion in church. Congregation said, you're a sore loser. They ran him out of town. He got on a boat and came home, and he truly was a failure in love, a failure in his relationships, a failure as pastor. He had to come home and re-envision, what do I see in my life? At a Bible study, he has this spiritual experience and this, this overwhelming feeling of God's grace. A friend of his calls and says, I'm outdoor preaching now and I'm trying something new. John Wesley believed you can't worship if you're not in a beautiful cathedral like this. No, for him, it was, you, you got to be here. And, and now he's being told, why don't you come out and we're preaching outdoors in the open air. He was willing to think outside the box. And in 1737, he went and began to do that. And the response of people was just incredible. So incredible, he'd do it for more than the next 50 years, riding on horseback. He would ride 250,000 miles. Think about that. Ride on horseback a quarter of a million miles. Estimated he preached 40,000 sermons. And after all those years, he literally had changed the soul of England. When he was in his mid-30s and he'd show up to preach, people threw eggs at him, they beat him, they hollered at him. After 30 years, he was a celebrity. People loved him. And now when he reached into his 60s, his late 60s, you know, Wesley could have said, I've had a good life, I've done well. He had written a whole lot. He'd made a lot of money. He didn't sit back. No, when he was 71 years old, in 1774, he took on slavery. He began writing how slavery was wrong and we needed to abolish it in England. We wouldn't deal with that for another 90 years in this country. He began fighting against slavery in 1774, saying it was wrong, stirring people up because it was a highly controversial subject. When he was 85, he went to Bristol, 85, and preached a sermon at the Methodist house, anti-slavery. People were so divided, they got up into a fist fight, breaking the pews. 85. 
At 88, he was back in London, and the last letter he would write would be to William Wilberforce to encourage him to continue his fight against slavery. I look at his life and I think, this is someone who stayed in the game all his life. Whether he's a young man at Oxford and coming to America, failing, coming back, trying, hard times, good times. 88, he was still going strong. That's when he would die. There in London, in 1791, surrounded by family and friends. And as they gathered round, he had been sort of quiet and not saying anything when finally he drew together his strength and said, Best of all is... God is with us. And he grew quiet. And after a while, he drew together his strength and offered a prayer for the church and for the king. And then again said, Best of all is, God is with us. And John Wesley died. He was a man who stayed in the game all his life with his dreams and goals and passion and giving his best. Peter faced that moment. I'm going fishing. And the others went with him. And after they fished all night, John tells us they caught nothing. John was telling us something there. When you go out and you're on your own, when you're willing to settle for less, What do you get? Nothing. That morning we know that Jesus is going to be on the beach fixing them breakfast. The last thing they expected was Jesus to show up on the beach with breakfast. Again, John was trying to say, when's the last thing you expect for Christ to show up in your life? That's the message of Easter. In those most difficult of moments, stay in the game, giving your best, rounding third, heading for home. Secondly, I believe Easter says to us, you have to remember the power of choice. The power of choice. Easter gives you that. You know, I've always been a fan of um, Charlie Brown, Peanuts. Charles Schultz was such a great writer. He was a man of great faith and a real theologian. And you don't sometimes always realize that, and I, as a kid growing up reading, but when you go back and study it, you understand he really was a theologian. And I, and I love the, the, the cartoon. I've always remembered it through the years where Lucy and Charlie Brown are having lunch. And they're having lunch, and Charlie Brown is just complaining and going, I hate lunchtime. I hate lunchtime. Always the same. It's always the same. I hate lunch. And Lucy said, well, Charlie Brown, who packs your lunch? Charlie Brown thinks for a moment and he says, well, I do. Yeah. You're not happy with your life? Who's packing your lunch? 
It's a choice. Peter was faced with a choice. You had dreamed of helping to change the world. You failed. Circumstances didn't go the way you planned and now you were hurt. So, do you settle for less? Do you just go back to the way things were? Or do you envision your life in a new way and follow God into the future? For Peter, it was a choice, just like it is for you and me. And it's because we live in the Easter experience, which you and I define for those last six weeks, trusting in God's grace in our lives when He shows up at the time you least expect it. You don't quit. You stay in the game. It's a choice. Last weekend for Easter, our son Paul and his wife Krista came back home to Oklahoma City along with their two children. We got to be at the grandkids and we had such a good time. And before they came, Marsh and I were upstairs preparing a couple of those bedrooms for them to come. And we came across a poster that I hadn't thought about in years. But it was a poster we had up on his wall when he was a boy growing up. You know, Paul loved athletics. Every child is different. Our son loves sports. And he started playing baseball when he was five years old, t-ball, and then it was Little League, and he'd play football and basketball and hockey and soccer. He would play them all at one time sooner or later. But he loved baseball. I had grown up playing baseball. And when he graduated from high school, he had a choice to make. The Naval Academy in Annapolis offered him a scholarship to come play football. And Johns Hopkins offered him to come play baseball. He wanted to be a a surgeon. And he knew if he went to the Naval Academy, some got to go to medical school on the government's dime. If you went to Hopkins, 94% of pre-med students made it into medical school. He liked those odds. And he liked baseball, and so he went to Hopkins to play. We'd go every year to spring training. I remember his junior year, they were playing down in um, Fort Myers, Florida. And we went down to go see him play. We were expecting a great year from him that year. And he started off at spring training doing so well. And then one game, he had hit a home run, and next time up, he's driven one out into the outfield. He was rounding first, rounding second, heading for third when he jumped up in the air and grabbed his leg and could not run. I knew what happened immediately. He'd pulled a hamstring. And that's such a painful, hard injury. He had to come out of the game. He would be in therapy for weeks and weeks, missing so much of the season. He tried to keep training. He finally was able to come back, came back his first game, hit two home runs, hit a double, He was so thrilled we talked and then he said the next day his knee swole up. He was back in therapy again. It was a tough season over and over again. And we knew why. It went back to his seventh grade year. Back when he was such a little kid in the seventh grade. He was playing football there at his school and they had a play and everybody piled on and they all got up and walked away. And Paul didn't get up. They came out and picked him up and carried him off the field. 
I went down to check on him. The next day we took him to an orthopedic surgeon and he had blown out his ACL, seventh grade. And the doctor said, that doesn't happen in the seventh grade. You're too pliable. But it did to Paul. He said, we really can't fix it because of your growth plates and we really can't operate on you until you're maybe 17, 18 years old. Your sports days are over. The next day we went to another orthopedic surgeon and this surgeon said, well, that's all true, but there is this new cutting edge surgery, this was so many years ago, where we take some of your hamstring and we'll run it through there and build your ACL with your hamstring. It will grow. We can do that now and we think we've been having success. So we had that surgery. It put his knee back together and sure enough, he would start playing sports again. He would be on an, a state champion baseball team, a state champion football team and go on to play in college. It was so important in his life. But I remember seventh grade. Seventh grade when we had the surgery. And we did not know what the future would hold. He got through with the surgery and I remember taking him to go see the physical therapist. And the physical therapist gave him ten different exercises to do. And said, I want you to do ten reps of each of these exercises a day. And we're sitting there and Paul, I mean, a small seventh grade kid suddenly speaks up and says, well, how many reps can I do? And the doctor said, well, if you want to do 20, do 20. No, how many reps can I do and not hurt myself? Well, I wouldn't do more than 100, he said. And he said, thank you. And he came home. And each night, nobody ever had to say a word. We never went back to physical therapy. Every night when I came home, he was up in his room doing 100 reps of each of those things he's supposed to do. Tears would be streaming down his cheek because it was so painful. And he'd be in his room alone working so hard. We got a poster we'd put up on the wall. And it would stay there because it became sort of a theme. It showed a player still in uniform in the locker room all alone. You could tell they were dirty and tired and beaten. Their leg was propped up and there was a big ice pack on the knee. And underneath it said, Don't let yesterday's defeats determine tomorrow's dreams. Don't let yesterday's defeats determine tomorrow's dreams. For Peter, he had known defeat, failure, great pain. He had a choice to make. Through the presence of Christ to give strength, a choice. Do you want to sit on the fence, play it safe, do you want to settle? Or do you want to let God lead you into the future? It really is the choice that each of us has to make. Over and again through our lives, from the days when we are young to the days we grow old, it's a choice. Don't let 
yesterday's defeats, determine tomorrow's dreams. Living in Easter gives you the courage to stay in the game. Rounding third, heading for home. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own.